It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat, blood, who errs, who comes short again and again, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who, at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold, timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. These are the rules of the arena. Welcome, everyone, to Rules of the Arena, episode 27. Uh, this episode is made possible by Blind Ninja Studios, where you can find this show and others such as Department of Offense, Homebrew Bound, Soundwave, and Legends of Lothos. We are also brought to you by Duck Hill Workshop, a small-scale sawmill and builders of fine furniture. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram, both under Duck Hill Workshop. Don't forget to subscribe to their YouTube channel, where you can watch episodes of Work Workshop Wednesday and In the Shop with Ben and Glenn. And we are finally joined back by, well, it's been over a month now, uh, super, produce, super producer Casey. Well, hey. You finally back from his little jaunt into Europe for, what, well, three weeks, Well, I don't know what you're weeks. talking about there, but. <laughs> How was it? Uh, you know, it was, it was a good trip. It was a good trip. If you want to hear uh, more uh, more detail on that, don't really have time to do that on this show, uh, check out um, this week's episode of Homebrew Bound or last week's episode of the Department of Offense. And unfortunately, tonight we are not joined by Ben. He is actually doing a photo shoot for a local horse show, uh, but he will hopefully be back in the next episode. Fingers crossed. More importantly, we are joined this week all the way from Utah, Sydney Smith. He is a husband, father for bow hunter and triathlete. And if any of those jobs weren't difficult enough, uh, if you're not familiar with his story, Sid is also a double amputee. Uh, thank you again, Sid, for coming out and spending time with us on your evening. Uh, please introduce yourself just a little bit for everyone listening. Yeah, definitely. My, uh, I appreciate uh, being on the show. Looking forward to it. Um, yeah, my name is Sydney, and and uh, you pretty much summed up a lot of the the things about me. Uh, four kids, uh, three girls, and a boy. Um, born and raised in Utah. Pretty much uh, been a Westie my whole life. Um, I love the outdoors, love to fish, love to hunt, love to hike, um, you know, uh, and a new sport that I've recently found since I've been a double amputee is I, uh, I love to swim, bike and run and, and do that competitive competitively in a triathlon environment. Um, still, like I said, still like to hunt, still like to fish, love the bow, um, love to shoot. It's just, uh, just being outdoors is just definitely my favorite thing. Now, and I assumed when I first started following you on Instagram that you, you're double empty because you're a veteran. And after seeing a post, you mentioned, you know, it's actually a, a, a genetic disorder, a disease called Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease or CMT. How old were you when you were first diagnosed or when did you find out that you had that? Do we lose him? Sid, can you hear me? There we go. Hey, perfect. All right. Sorry, Skype was being Skype. That's ah, the internet for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Is dial-up not going to work? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think it matters this week. Need Comcast more hamsters, has been right? having issues all all week. So, <laughs> did you? Uh, so I was just asking, um, or I was just saying when. I saw when I first started following you. I assumed that you're double empty because you're a veteran. I mean, that's typically 
what we see on social media these days. Uh, but you were actually diagnosed with char. Uh, I apologize if I'm saying this wrong. Charcot Marie tooth disease. Oh, that's pretty good. Pretty close. Yes, yeah, uh, charcoal. Charcoal. Charcoal tooth. It's like a. It's a, the last. Uh, the, the the doctors that have discovered it's their last names, but sure. yeah, I, I get that a lot. You know, uh, whether I'm in a restaurant or an airport, I get people that will just come up. Some people even in tears, they'll just say, hey, thank you so much for your service. Um, so I, I do get that. Uh, <laughs> um, I, you know, I get it. I usually have a big beard and and, uh, and I'm fit and I'm about that age. I, I mean, I get it. Um, but uh, yeah, I lost it to, to a disease that I was born with. Um, and then it was uh, progressive. Uh, it was a, it's actually a fairly common disease among muscular dystrophy, but Within charcoal Marie tooth, there's different types, and my sure. type was a very different and aggressive on the feet. Yeah, I read, I was reading online. It would, it's affects one in twenty five hundred people. Is that roughly correct? Yeah, and and most of the time, people wouldn't even know they have it, or they're just carriers of it. It could be as simple as uh, chicken legs, or you know, thin wrists, or weak hands, or high arches. Um, but in my case, it was all that. And then the foot would deform where it would, you know, the toes would curl the, uh, and then it would, the heel would roll. So I would, my ankle became my heel eventually. Sure. Uh, how old were you when you first diagnosed with it, with CMT? Uh, well, my parents, you know, they, it, being that it's a genetic thing, you would, what was weird about my type is that my parents didn't have it, their parents didn't have it, and so it was just, it must it had skipped quite a bit of generations from nobody that has it. Um, and as of now, my kids don't have it. But uh, for me, they just noticed, like, playing on the playground and or with friends, I couldn't run very fast, um, and that my feet looked a little bit different, and then I started tripping a lot. And then because the muscles are very fatigued quickly, you know, just walking and hiking, um, they began to uh, hurt and, and, and fatigue quickly. I was about eight years old when they decided, when they when we went to a doctor and they gave me the diagnosis. I mean, was it really painful when you were growing up? I mean, you said the muscle fatigue. Was it just typically, a, I go to the gym and I work out and now I'm sore, or was it more of a... a actual I guess pain for lack of better words uh at first it was more I mean it was at first it was more of an embarrassment because I couldn't wear shorts because it was really prominent in my legs um and get teased a lot and then I think so most of it like in the beginning was more emotional but uh like it was more like the best way I can describe it is if you're outside and you're trying to do some fine dexterity and it's super cold and you just can't get them to work no matter how mentally you're trying to, to you know, zip a zipper or open a jar or tie a fishing knot. It's kind of like that where it's just, there's no strength at all. No matter, you know, even though my upper body was completely fine, that was how it was in the beginning. And then towards the end as the deformities became, you know, starting to take a wear and tear, then bones started to break then arthritis and ulcers started to kick in and then it got, you know, so painful that I couldn't even walk. So hey. towards the end. 
were you able to correct or fix any of it with surgery or did you, did you try to go without yeah. going with surgery? Yeah. Um, right at the beginning, uh, whatever fifth grade is, is when uh, we started with the first surgery and a lot of it was just reconstructive moving muscles, tendons to try to pull things into different directions to kind of compensate the deformity. And then, you know, it just became progressive and I hit a growth spurt and, you know, it would just get worse. And then eventually we advanced to like breaking bones and then using screws and um, pins and plates to try to keep it look straight. And then um, we did that off and on up until I was about 25 and we did about 10 different times on each foot. And then it wasn't until you know, I'm on my own. I'm, you know, couldn't afford the cost of medical attention like I was when I was with my parents. And, and so I just kind of let it go until I was about 30 and the doctor's like, yeah, your, your feet are pretty much ruined. I mean, we can, you could be in a wheelchair and we can still keep them, but you're not going to use them on a functional level or we could try prosthetics and, and uh, see what amputation has done. And so that's that's kind of the extensive luck of surgeries and so forth. I mean, the first time you said you're in fifth grade, I think that's what ten ish years old, nine, ten, somewhere in that range. I can't remember that far back. <laughs> I mean, uh, what was going? Do you remember what was going through your head at that point? I mean, were you nervous going in for the first surgery? Um, yeah. Yes and no. I didn't really know for sure. I mean, I was just a kid that liked to play with pogs. I mean, I didn't really go outside and do recess, uh, tether ball maybe. But uh, I mean, I didn't. I didn't really know. I mean, I just knew that there was something wrong with me. And the doc, you know, my parents said, you know, I had total faith in them that, hey, you got, you know, you need to fix your feet so you can walk better. Um, your feet look bad. Let's try to get that taken care of. And so I just kind of took their trust and. Um, went with that. I didn't really know much about the disease. I ran into, like we went to a, um, a seminar in Salt Lake and where a bunch of people that had the disease uh, were there. And that was the first time I met somebody else that had it. And it was ranged from, you know, people that kind of walked funny to people in a wheelchair. And I, at that point, it was kind of an eye-opening experience. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, am I going to be like these guys? Um, and, uh, you know, I learned more about the disease, how it was genetic. And I thought, crap, you know, I don't want to have kids because I don't want them to have this disease. And then not to mention, it's like, who's going to marry me knowing that I could pass on this, this, uh, genetics. So that's kind of, that was probably in that range where I started to realize, you know, the magnitude, but at the same time, there was no proof as far as like, cause everyone's different. And I just kind of denied it thinking, Hey, I'll be all right. I'm not, you know, the sun's going to come out tomorrow. I'll be just fine. There's no, you know, no worries. And I'm not going to be in a wheelchair or anything like that. So just kind of ignored it, which was my first approach. And to back up a little bit, you mentioned, you know, you had a hard, you're tripping a lot, you know, I mean, did you, were you teased a bunch as a kid or at all? I mean, did, were you able to participate in, you know, other activities like sports and stuff? I know it was, 
you know, kind of the, the social gathering points when you're a young kid? I mean, were you able to do those activities? Um, yeah, not yes and no. I mean, I, I'm, I was always the nice kid at school, so I had lots of friends. Um, but, you know, so I got picked on like a maybe a flag football team at recess. I was usually like the last one. <laughs> but uh, physically, I couldn't run very well. Um, I swam really well. I was uh, one of the fastest swimmers at school. And uh, just because it didn't require the the uh, the feet like you would use for basketball. Um, teased, I did. Um, eventually, I got these giant braces. We call them ankle foot orthotics. It looked very similar to what Forrest Gump wear, wore. And ironically, you know, right when I got those is when that movie came out. So everyone kept saying, run, Sydney, run. Run, Sydney, run. So, That's the worst was, damn timing. <laughs> I still get it, too. People tell me all the time. But now I don't mind because I like to run. Right. <laughs> I remember I was in, I think, second or third grade when Gordy the Pig came out. And I was much shorter than I am now and asthmatic and could not run if you held a gun to the back of my head. Can you run now, Gordon? It's like a O-line <laughs> jog. <laughs> uh, now, to, and remind me again, Sid, how old did were you when you decided to have, go through with the first amputation? Oh, uh, let's see. Um, I have to think back because we did wait a little bit um, it, it would have been, uh, about 32 ish. 30. Yeah. 32, 31, 31, 32. And is one. were you married that at that time already? Well, yeah, yeah. I got married. Um, I got married pretty young. Um, I already had three kids. And so going into that first invitation, I mean, what did your family think and what did they say? My immediate family or my, uh, like my parents and brothers and sisters or my wife and kids? Uh, both. Uh, it, it, different views on each side. Like, um, on my parents, I mean, they, they were there with, well, my dad was there, um, with me when I went to the doctor, when I first, when we first heard the, that that is the solution of amputation. Um, so my dad was there and I, it was not easy for him as it was, you know, because, you know, if, if you're a father, I don't know if you guys are have any kids, but if you were to hear that your kid had to go through that, if I heard my son had to go that, you know, it, it would break my heart. So it was, it was tough on him. Um, uh, and then, you know, of course, they're, you know, they, they're very big in their faith and, and so am I. And they, you know, they, they have a strong belief that things happen for a reason. So they were very positive. Um, brothers and sisters are very supportive. They knew, you know, I've always had a struggle and I've gotten through it. So they knew that I had the capability of, um, you know, doing the surgery and, and coming out of it and, you know, having a different lifestyle. My wife, on the other hand, when she first heard it, she was, you know, wanted a second opinion, um, just because it was a shock. And I, and I personally knew deep down in my heart that that was going to be the road I was going to end up going just because when you have so many and it's just, there's just not 
it just didn't make sense for it to even, you know, to have a foot because it wasn't doing anything. Um, but my wife, she had a hard time at first. Then eventually she kind of, you know, she told me, uh, hey, I know you well enough to know that you can overcome hard things and I think you could get through this. And she became very supportive. Uh, my kids, you know, they've always seen me struggle. And so they didn't really know a dad differently. Um, so they were very adaptive because they just, they're young. Kids are very adaptive. They're very accepting of things. And so they, they were just there to support me as well. And, and, um, you know, even to this day, they just, they just know me as, as Sid, the dad with missing his legs. <laughs> so. And I, I actually watched the video with, uh, mountain ops, the, how I conquer, and if I feel lazy to begin with, and then I see you going out there and you're training for Ironman, uh, and they talked about you, you talked about your story a little bit on there, and you decided originally just to have one leg amputated. Uh-huh. Why did you decide to go with one and not both originally? Um, well, it, so where I live, um, it, it's it's a smaller town. I live in Vernal, Utah. It's uh. I mean, it's not too small, but the the uh, experts in um, you know building legs, a prophetess is what we call them, and uh, a doctor that specializes in amputations and at this level, uh, they were about three hours away, and uh, my house is really old, and and I, we didn't really have capable of doing uh, a wheelchair, so we decided to just do one because it was easier to get around than, you know, on crutches, um, and, and to drive to a doctor's appointment if need be. Um, that's, that's kind of why we did one at, at first and then waited. We wanted to wait till the first one healed and then, um, got used to, you know, putting all the weight on the prosthetic, relying on that prosthetic and then amputate the right. And so you mentioned the doctor is about a three-hour drive away for going through, I imagine you had to do physical therapy. Mm-hmm. After that first amputation, I mean, how far were you driving for those appointments? Um, it, so at first, um, well, the nice thing is that my town does have physical therapy. So I was able to get done with that, and that was twice a week. Um, but as far as like my stump inspection... Um, because I, I had gotten an infection and it got really bad and for a while there I will try and do, you know, to get that infection out, um, it was once a week, sometimes twice a week where we had to drive to, cause it, you know, I was at a kind of a high risk. If you don't take care of an infection, especially in the bone, it just grows and eventually could kill you if you're not careful. I mean, what kind of signs are you looking at to know? So if there's somebody listening out there that is recently had an amputation and what kind of signs can they look for, for an infection? Um, well, I'm not the uh, best poster child for that. <laughs> Cause, uh, um, you know, I've had some rough times I, at the very beginning. Um, I let an infection take over and I just assumed it was the symptoms of a ba- being an amputee, you know, just the pain and being sick, the trauma, the anesthesia, the hospital, all that stuff. 
but what was happening was that it was you know I became septic it, the uh, where the incision was there was um, yellow stuff coming out of it it became inflamed super red um, and then I just you know had a high fever you know about 103 um, high fever couldn't function I was overheating um, delusional all that stuff got to that point um, and then when I eventually went to the doctor that's when they looked at and it was just obvious um that it was it had gotten bad at that one um it had gotten so bad that it started eating the bone so uh, eventually they once they had cleaned it out um let things take over the bone had died and they had to um amputate a little bit higher uh that was at the beginning um and then i had another one here last month in may um, same scenario, except this time I had caught it. I knew I was sick. I got on the medication. It turned out to be a double in- infection. So I was taking Bactrim and, um, and I, what I needed to do was take Bactrim and amoxicillin. One was a staff, one was a strep. And uh, it had got, you know, started going up into my knee, into the bone. But luckily, the bone hasn't died. So I didn't, so I dodged a bullet there, you know. I had to have surgery, but I didn't have to amputate any higher. So that I, I, you know, to answer your question, a lot of it's going to have to do with cleaning your wound, making sure it's clean. Um, even though, you know, when I talk to an infection specialist that deals with amputees, even guys, you know, that are couch potatoes still get them. So you're not completely, you know, just because I run and I cut myself and get blisters doesn't mean that, you know, we all have, the capability of even getting an infection. Amputees probably have a higher chance just because of, you know, being inside a prosthetic can make it real nasty and, and you know, you just got to clean it often. That's one of the best ways to prevent it. But catching it when you have a fever, all that stuff, making sure you go see a doctor quick. Don't be, you know, I know no one wants to pay that copay, but it's <laughs> worth it versus having an amputation. Do when they give you your prosthetics, I mean, do they kind of take you through, you know, here's a good way to maintain and clean, or is it, did you have to kind of figure that out on your own? You know what? Um, yeah, I, I feel bad. I'm going to throw someone under the bus. Um, my <laughs> first guy did not. I mean, he, it was all about, I mean, he was a great guy. Don't get me wrong, but it, it's a business. You know, they didn't, that wasn't addressed to me. Um, there's a lot of things that they just kind of get to your legs so you get on your day, get on your way. Um, but when I went and met up with an organization called Amputee Blade Runners, it was just a whole eye-opening experience where, you know, they, they walked me through things that I had no idea of being, in, you know, an amputee and some of the, you know, longevity of keeping equipment because equipment can be so expensive, how to take care of it, cleaning, um, stump health making sure that that's taken care of especially if you're a runner if you're a runner there's nothing more strenuous on your body and your stumps than running for an amputee and so they kind of walk me through that process too and as like i said i watched that video how i conquer and it was after that first infection you decided that you wanted to go in and have the second leg amputated what was that i mean did did it feel any different going into surgery and then coming out of that um going into it not no it it was worse 
Um, I had a little bit more faith in the first one, but when I had that infection and they said, Hey, we got to go a little bit higher. Well, it was when we, we decided, you know what? I'm just, I'm just so done with, you know, so much thing, so many things in life, you know, kind of had, a, I kind of had a depression, um, some suicidal thoughts, no attempts or anything, but you know, just, just kind of a rock bottom. And I just, I just didn't care. I just like, you know, I, I'm just going to go and just stay at, take them both, just get it over with, you know, whatever happens, happens. You know, I just had that mentality, you know, whatever life sucks anyways, can't get any worse. Um, that was, that was the mentality going in versus the, set, the first one. The first one I, I had a little bit more optimism. Second time, not so much. However, the second one coming out, uh, the surgery went a lot better. We did do some preventive stuff, such as they put me on vancomycin through a pick line um, just because they didn't want to have another infection. And we stayed in the hospital for another two weeks with antibiotics, even though I wasn't showing signs. They just wanted to be double, triple sure that I don't fall in that. Um, but whether that made the difference or not, um, I came out in the hospital a lot more positive been a lot more um, sure of myself. I kind of had a uh, oh an epiphany or a life changing experience or something on those lines when I uh, made some goals and set some new standards in my life, things that I wanted to do. You know, maybe some people call it a come to Jesus, <laughs> but that's that's what happened coming out of this out of the hospital the second time. I mean. You said you hit that rock bottom, that depression. I mean, how did you overcome that? I mean, did the did you talk to anyone or the goals that you set for yourself? Is that how you're able to kind of pull yourself through that? Uh, yes, yes, and no. I, I I didn't talk to anybody about it um, because I, you know, I was just raised that those things or those thoughts are wrong. You know, you shouldn't have those thoughts. So I think just mentally, I was embarrassed. I didn't want to show weakness to my wife because. Honestly, you know, it's for me it was tough, but for her it wasn't easy. I mean, she she didn't know what she signed up for at this point. Um, so I don't want her. I don't even want to show weakness on her on, on my part to her. So I think I kind of kept it to myself for a long time. Um, I think there was some moments of frustration that she knew. You know, I think I broke down a couple times, so she knew I wasn't easy. Um, but, uh, as far as getting out of it, uh, the, the moments that I had was I had a little daughter, uh, that was just learning to walk and, and that there's just little things about her. She's five years old now. There's just little things about her that, uh, um, that just made me realize that life, it doesn't matter what happens, you know, at this point, you know, you're, I mean, this this life could be sucky. You could be in a wheelchair. You could always be in a hospital, but you still have this, you know, amazing child, amazing children. Um, and uh, I bonded quite closely to her. Uh, this just the sound of the pitter patter of her walking up and down the halls was just that um, reinforcement in my mind that you know there's this is this is what life's about. You know, it's not all about you know the amazing things that you're now not going to be able to do. It's what you have right here in the inside of your walls, 
and uh, th- that that's one 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 step. The other one was when I was in the hospital. Um, I was watching uh, the Iron Man on TV. It was the first time I've ever seen that. And what it was was the championship course, and I was just really moved by it. But it was you know was kind of sad at the same time because I thought, hey, it would be cool to do that, but I don't have any legs. <laughs> Um, and it wasn't until I saw somebody actually do it on the TV that was wearing, you know, a prosthetic. And I researched that then and there and just found out that a guy did it with two legs. He was a double amputee with two legs. And um, I just, I felt compelled. I don't know if it was the pain pills or what, but I was just <laughs> moved. Uh, that That's what I want to do. And I just made a goal with me and God that, you know, if I can get out of this hospital and, and start walking, that that is, that's going to be my purpose. That's going to be my drive, um, um, to, to mentally overcome, um, this uh, thing in my life. Yeah. I saw, uh, it was end of middle or end of last year is when I started following you and saw that you're training for an Ironman. And that's what kind of grabbed my attention. I mean, it takes a special person with a certain mentality that let, I want to run, bike, and swim farther than most people drive on a daily uh, daily average. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, here's a guy with no legs, and he wants to do this. How did you start training for that? I mean, was there was there somebody else that you could kind of call on and be like, hey, I, I saw that you're an amputee. You mentioned you know he did it without legs. Did you reach out to him, or did you just, you know what, I'm going to wing it and go on my own? <laughs> well, first of all, it does take a special person, but you're being nice. We are crazy. There is something wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I mean, who who in their right mind would want to do that, you know? It's already, you know, to do a marathon is extreme, but to, to tack on 112 miles on the bike and then to swim for two and a half miles, I mean, it it is crazy. Sometimes, you know, at the beginning of the, all this, um, there's thoughts in my mind like, man, this is kind of crazy. I don't, I don't, I can't figure out how people can even do half of one. Um, but, uh, yeah, when I, when I first got into it, I, I watched some videos on YouTube on people that run and all that. There's not a lot of out there. There's not a lot of amputees that do this. Um, but I did, he, this gentleman, his name is Scott Rigsby. Um, that did the uh, Iron Man, the first Iron Man in prosthetics, double prosthetic or double amputee in prosthetics. Uh, I I ordered his book in, on Amazon and I started reading it in the hospital. I ended up reading it twice because when you're on pain pills and you try to read something, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> I read that book and uh, Lone, not Lone Survivor. Crap, what's the one with Chris Kyle? Um. Uh, American, is American it just soldier, American soldier, American sniper. Yeah. 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 American sniper. I read that. I had to read that one twice because I, I totally didn't even get that. But, uh, I, uh, I ended up contacting him through Facebook. And, um, after I finished my first 5k, I kind of explained to him that's what I want to do. And he kind of walked me through the steps and what things I need and, ended up being it was you know nice to talk to him but at the same time it's like holy crap this is going to take years <laughs> to get to do the iron man or even come close because there's so much preparation and it's when you're a double amputee it's 
it's uh, you you lose so much energy in prosthetics that you're really don't going almost twice as far when it comes to running, um, especially when you're a double. And so there's a lot of training. There's a lot of perfection that needs to happen in prosthetics. Um, there's a lot of equipment that you need, support teams. So there, there was it was a learning experience, but at the same time, it was just again motivating that hey, it's going to be a long journey, and I'm I'm prepared for it. I'm not going to stress out about it. I'm just going to think at one step at a time. Once I master this one step, then I'm going to move on to the next step. Once I finish this race, I'm going to move on to the next race, and so forth. So, how many miles do you run during an Ironman? Is it is it a full one, marathon? Yeah, it's full marathon yeah. of twenty six point two. Twenty six. Did you so when you got out of the hospital and you're able to start, you know, training for running? I mean, did you have a goal in mind for distance that you wanted to start with, or did you just like I'm going to go as far as I can today and build off of that? Uh, at at first, I mean, like I said, running is not is like the most painful. Um, so at first, it was just I wanted to make a goal to run around a track. And like in Vernal, we have like a mini track. It's like the, a fourth of a track. And I just wanted to run around that one time. So it took me a while. I, fin- I got like down it and then I ended up walking. And then the next day I get a little bit further. And then sometimes I only get like, you know, 50 yards. And then I come back again the next day. Eventually I got around it. And then my next goal from there is, okay, I, I want to run a whole mile. So then I went to a mile and then I got to two miles, and then at two miles, I said, all right, now I'm going to go for my first 5K. And so once I competed in my first 5K, it was just building on from there, and then a 10K, and then a half marathon, and so forth. You hear a lot uh, talking to different athletes, whether it's running, powerlifting, strongman, they talk about the mental side of things. I mean, did you feel like a good portion going into your first 5K, how much of it was your brain having to tell the body like, no, we will do this. Or was it more, was it the other yeah. way around for you? No, it, it, uh, yeah, I got into the, uh, a mental state. Like I, this is what's funny. I look at it now, like a five K is nothing compared to what I do on a regular basis for training. Um, and I was throwing up the night before, I didn't get any sleep. I didn't know how to prepare for it, like like race day. It was like the first race I've ever done. Like I've never I've never gotten a medal, like in anything. In swimming, we get ribbons. We don't get medals. <laughs> but I've never gotten a medal, and I and and I just I I mean, I just think it's funny because. Like I overate that morning thinking like, crap, I got to make sure my calories are right. I took these little goo shots, which is ridiculous in a 5K, but I didn't know. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to down a whole monster energy drink because I want the caffeine and the energy. And, you know, I was just a mess. Like if I were to do that before a race, I would just, I'd be wrecked. Um, But yeah, it it was, it, it was just, you know, I deep down, I was like, all right, I, I still have this big goal in mind, but I need to get through this one right, right there. But as I finished the finish line, it was just as sweet as any race I've ever done. In fact, sweeter because it was my first. Um, and, uh, and it just was motivating. It's like, all right, that was awesome. You know, it, all that work and it was worth it. And I'm going to, I'm going to go and do another one. 
did, did the second one seem a little bit easier going in, you know, the night before? Would you, or do you still get nervous going into races now? Uh, I, I don't. It depends on the distance. Like, it just depends on where I'm at physically, too. Like, I'm, you know, I'm afraid I don't want to, you know, I don't, like, I know it's going to hurt no matter what. Um, but it just depends on the distance. If I'm unaware with the distance, every time I take it to the next step, I beget, I become more nervous. Or if it's a course that I don't know well and I'm trying to be very competitive, I, I do get that feeling. Um, like, I got the shakes when I did my first half Ironman in St. George. I started crying at the start in the water. And I just, I just was becoming uncontrollable. I was just, I was so nervous and like my swimming, I usually can swim, um, every fifth stroke and I was hyperventilating cause I was so nervous. I was, I was breathing every stroke and, and eventually my heart rate came down and I got through the swim and, and then it, you know, the rest is history. But yeah, I, I would say about every new distance I get that. And it, it's so hard because I tell myself, it's like, you got this. You've done your training. You're physically in shape. You're healthy. You've you've done this distance before on on in training. Why can't you do it in a race? So and I and I have a feeling I'll have the race jitters for the full Ironman <laughs> as well. <laughs> and so the, another part of the Ironman is the swimming portion. And you mentioned you were you were good at swimming back in you know uh, in school. How much of a learning curve did you have to go through? to adjust after having both legs amputated to learn how to swim and let alone swim competitive, competitively, competitively. Yes. Thank you. Uh, uh, cardiovascularly. Uh, I don't know if that's even a word. Um, I was there already. Like I, my body had already developed that cardiovascular beforehand. Um, my arms, you know, the muscle memory and, and the catch, was was close my only problem was my body positioning and how my hands would enter the water when i first started swimming without legs um and and just so people understand like you know, i i would love to have a, a mermaid prosthetic or something like that <laughs> to, to swim with uh or snorkel fins or whatever um, but when it when you're doing it competitively, whether it's in the Olympics or if you're doing it in a triathlon Ironman um, or even other swimming events, uh, their prosthetics are not allowed. And so I thought, all right, I'm not going to try doing it with fins. I'm just going to jump in. And as soon as I hit the water, uh, my stumps would sink. And where normally I would kick to keep me level and then I can use my upper body if what my muscle memory is doing and that wasn't there so i was kind of freaking out about that um i contacted an organization called uh, challenge athletes foundation out of uh san diego and they hooked me up with an online coach and i just put the gopro underwater i had people videotape and we did that for like months straight and just tweaked a little bit and eventually i got to the point where i was very good comfortable um figure out how to be more buoyant, where to put a lot of shift, some of my weight, how to enter the water a little bit better. Um, and, uh, I just, it, that learning curve came back really quick. Once I had somebody correct some of the, uh, um, issues I was struggling with. 
you mentioned in so the prosthetics or special prosthetics are not allowed in the Iron Man. So when you're running, you're using those same prosthetics as you're swimming and then biking. Can the I can kind of see the transition from running to biking, uh, running to swimming, not being too bad. But when you have to hop on a bike, I mean, I when growing up as a kid, I'm sure if you've done two, Casey, where you'd be pedaling real fast and all of a sudden your foot slips off, that pedal comes back around and smacks you in the shin. Yeah, you clip in now, Gordon. Like you're clipped into the bike. I don't know. I haven't. <laughs> well, you see me on camera. I don't bike a lot or run. <laughs> I mean, uh, is it a fairly easy transition for you then to just hop on the bike, or are you allowed to swap out prosthetics real quick so you have something that locks in? Um, so I, I start off. I have a what they call a leg caddy. Or I, I, I mean, that's what I call them. It's just someone that's a handler at the race, and it just depends on the race. So if it's a, I start in the water and you go out and then you come back, then I'll just leave my legs right there at the beach. And some of them you start in the water and then you go out and then you end up on a different spot. Um, I'll have someone take my walking legs over there, and then I, when I get out of the water. I put on, I make sure everything's dry because you don't want, you know, your, your stumps to be moist. Otherwise, they could have some friction problems or you don't want them to come off. Um, and I put on my walking legs and then from there, or at the water's edge, I put on my walking legs. From there, I kind of run up to where my bike is and where everybody's bike is. And then I pop off my walking legs and then I pop on my biking legs and then... I clip in to, uh, in fact, this is funny that you're, I'll show you. This is what my biking leg looks like right here. And uh, it just clips into the pedal like this. Um, and then and, uh, no, there's no energy into this. It's just straight on sure. right into the, to the pylon. Or the, into the pedal. So it's, then, it's uh, for listeners who can't see the video, um, like it clips on like middle of heel. Like, so my, my biking shoes clip in like more towards the ball of the foot. Is there a reason that yours are more straight up down? Is it because you don't have the, the control of the foot or? That's uh, a good observation. Um, the reason why, and, and we, my bike pitter, um, he specializes in prosthetics and he does um, different Paralympians and so forth. The reason why the heel is suggested um, is because for me as a double, as I'm making that pedal stroke, I want to have a smooth rotation instead okay. of just force on the quad and then it's just kind of catching over. And when I have it on the toe, there's actually a little bit of a dead spot. So it's not smooth it kind of has a little dead a dead spot so the rotation has a, almost like a hitch in the it's a hitch in the pedal oh interesting um but uh there you know it makes it awkward when i try to get up on the saddle and climbing hills because it's just it just feels more natural to have it there on the toe mm-hmm. so there's sometimes i wish it kind of went back and forth but when i'm on my tri tri bike and i'm just cruising on a flat i'm i do a lot better when it's just positioned there um, but yeah, back to the, to the rest of the transition. Once I'm off the bike, then we're, 
the, the second transition is what they call it is where I'll have my running blades um, and then I'll pop off my lake, um, my, my biking lakes and then put on my running lakes. I've seen those blades before. The well, the first time I saw them was um, uh, who's the Olympian, Oscar something. Oscar Yes, is that kind of the the standard design model now, or have they? Uh, he hasn't competed in many years. I, it, is they is there a lot of innovation? You know, like with cars, every five years there's that new design to make it a little bit better for aerodynamics or whatever the case may be. Do you see a lot of that in, with prosthetics? Uh, a little bit. His is more sp- specified to um, sprinting. So on a trek, and where that blade is connected is a it's a posterior mount. So it's actually collect- connected almost to the up up towards his knee on the back back of his calf. Remind this is direct distal mount. So right there on the bottom of my stump. And you don't see him competing anymore because he's in jail. But that's another story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, it, but uh, anyways, they, the the technology has improved, um, not dramatically where there's any more advantage than somebody in, than that has a, a a meat leg or a, whatever you want to call it a physical leg. Uh, but uh, like the company that I uh, represent for my running blades is a company called Phil Hour, and they do a different technology where they actually put a split down the middle. Um, and then it allows it to have a little more um, stability, side-to-side action um, when I want to do like a trail run. Um, and then it just is really soft. Um, it does give you a good amount of energy. Um, but as far as as far as there are any advantages now that's made it better, I wouldn't say it's that vastly huge um, for it to be. Holy cow, you know. Now, now, now it's now. There's an advantage, and people should start chopping off their legs because their arms because are so amazing. I mean, everyone asks that about Star Wars. I mean, you look at what Luke had. Why, why don't everybody just chop off their arms? Right, right. <laughs> well, they're coming a long way. I saw the the kid recently. Um, he had a Iron Man suit armor, like 3D printed arm. And that looked pretty cool. I can't remember yeah. what organization put that together, but uh, we mentioned. I mentioned earlier you're also a bow hunter. I said, and have you always been into hunting? Was that kind of brought down from the family, or is that something yet you wanted to take up on your own? Uh, no, definitely. It, it's. Uh, I mean, I guess we're, I'm big into history and journals and stuff like that. Uh, my my father and his father and his father and his father. It's always been a tradition to hunt. Um, bow hunting, though, was something that I more wanted to do before I lost my legs, and I did a little bit of archery at school, um, but I never got into the hunting side of it until after I was an amputee. But you know, rifle hunting, shotguns, uh, birds, all that deer, elk. Um, that's always been a family tradition and. And I would say, post amputation, I've been more into hunting, on you know, almost on a lifestyle level, than I was when I was in my twenties and teenage years. Do you feel bow hunting is any harder or easier because of the prosthetics? Uh, it's definitely harder. A <laughs> um, couple things. Uh, so with with bow hunting 
or shooting a bow, I should say, uh, stability is huge on your feet. You want to have a good level stability. And with the prosthetics, there's, you know, the springs in them. Even walking legs that have carbon fiber. Uh, feeling the ground, you want to have that center of gravity, and that's hard to lock that in. Um, so a lot of times in tournaments or 3D shoots, I'll I'll just drop down to my knees, or I'll find you know, you know even a further shot or diff- more difficult shot for some people, but the ground is level, um, just because I can do better that way. Um, but when it comes to hunting, <laughs> I uh, I probably am the worst stalker. I mean, <laughs> there there was one time on a turkey that I ended up just taking my legs off and just crawling and it was just easier that way and i may may do that in the future um but a lot like the deer that i've killed this year um has been crawling and then blowing them up and just eventually stock after stock and then you know the the mule deer and the white tail i killed uh this last year was pretty much after so many attempts something's about to give and i got lucky so (laughs) hey did you uh you know, you mentioned dropping down to your knees. I mean, how how easy is it, or how hard is it for you to get? Because especially in Utah, you're at a higher elevation. I mean, what's it like hiking into the mountains? Because I've seen elk hunts where you hike 16, 20 miles, and you maybe, if you're lucky, you see an elk, and then <laughs> have to try to get in within what I've seen anywhere from 30 to 50 yards with you know experienced hunters. Yeah, no, that's safe. That's a good yardage. That's where I feel comfortable at too. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's just the drive really that gets it going. I mean, that's I'm not I'm not the fastest hiker. I'm not the slowest hiker. Um, and it it is there's some challenges for sure. Like I I I don't. It's hard for me to carry my bow uh, in my hands while I'm hiking. If I'm if I know I'm in a position where I could make a shot or I know that there's going to be an opportunity, then yeah, I'll carry my bow. But most of the time, I just strap it on my backpack and I use trekking poles. And the trekking poles, you know, for one, they're they're a great advantage when you're packing the animal out. But two, for me, it just helps me with that extra bit of stability. You know, climbing over logs, coming down steep hills, going uphill. Um, it's, I call it my four wheel drive. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the track trekking poles help, um, even with single amputees, I highly recommend them. Um, just, just, it just, any little bit helps that helps, you know, with balance and, and, and fatigue. Now, I don't know what the, the bear population of Utah is, but I know when you're packing out an animal, especially elk hunts in certain areas, you're competing with grizzlies. I mean, do you, do you have to deal with that much? And I mean, how do you bring friends or do you go hunting with groups to help get the animal out in one trip to avoid any encounters? Um, I haven't been in that situation. There was one time I went ice fishing and we, I went to, by myself in a remote spot and I don't know, like there's, they say there's no wolves in Utah uh, but where I was was on the border of Wyoming, and it and it kind of freaked me out a little bit because um, you can hear them howling. 
Um, we all know that but, wolves respect state lines. So. <laughs> yeah, they should. <laughs> uh, but yeah, according to DNR, there's no wolves in Utah. But, right. And that's fine because that's uh, good because if they were in here, we don't want any protesters. <laughs> um, but yeah, I haven't, I haven't had a grizzly bear experience and sometimes I'm by myself when it's been an elk. It's, it's almost like you need, you need the help. Yeah. Because so, that's what four or 500 pounds on it. If it's a big animal that you have to carry yeah. out and I can carry a lot of weight, but not at high altitude. <laughs> no, no, it takes a long time and you want to, you don't want any of that meat to go to waste. It's just to respect for the animal and Plus, I, I, I live off that stuff sometimes, and so it's good to have help. To go back uh, a little bit or change tra- uh, directions a little bit, um, we've kind of talked off air, and you've been a public speaker now for some time. I mean, how often do you get asked to do a public speaking event, and is it strictly for CMT or other reasons? Um. No, I, I haven't done anything for CMT itself, um, but no, it, it really, it I never pursued it as something that I want to do just because no who likes to speak in front of a bunch of people? So I guess there's some some people that do, but... That's why I do a podcast, it's just cameras. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it can get intimidating, you know, it's, I don't... I, I feel more comfortable now, but in the beginning, it just it started off with the scout troop in my local town. It's like, hey, can you come speak to these scout boy scouts and tell them your story? I'm like, oh, sure. And then that person told um, somebody in a, in a church, and so then I spoke to a youth group, and then that person told it to a, another person at church, and then I spoke to a congregation, then I went to schools, and then um, uh, I... I got to do the U.S. Army, and then um, I've been traveling a little bit to other schools just through invite. I don't, I wouldn't say I um, ever like promote it just because I don't really want to quit my day job doing it. Um, but the more that I do it, and some of the feedback that I get just from sharing my struggles and the lessons I've learned, and and just you know all that mushy stuff, you know, some of the impact that I've heard from other people or feedback down the road um it's almost became i don't know a duty to 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 uh, maybe have somebody that's going through a rough time and and uh have them make a difference in their life um you know i you know we've all had people that have made differences in our lives and i feel you know, even though I've had some rough times, I feel blessed with what I have been given. I am happy where I'm at. I know it's not for just luck that I am where I'm at. I think there's a divine intervention. And uh, maybe it's my way of trying uh, the best to pay it back by telling people. Now, um, you know, I've used it some cases with this Ironman because it's so expensive. I have spoke to um, organizations that have paid me to speak and that's uh, I've used that money to help cover some of these costs to get there so that's that's been an, uh, a nice thing as you know supplemental income to 
to help with those things. But uh, yeah, I, I enjoy it. Um, would I quit my day job? No. Um, <laughs> if it fits my schedule, I'd love to help the best I can. And, and if I can, can make it out there, I, I, uh, I, I don't mind doing it. Have you found it easier with the you know the expansion of social media and the internet, uh, people being able to reach out to you, or do you find a lot of the, uh, I guess, proverbial keyboard warriors that are more than happy to critique about how you're doing, how you're doing your thing? Uh, I have I haven't had a whole lot. Usually, other people the people that give you shit is the people that are already amputees. <laughs> <laughs> So they're all like, "Hey, uh, you know, you should do this," or they have their own reasons why they do things. Uh, no, I haven't had anyone really critique me as far as speaking goes. But and there's there's some really nice people that have helped me, you know, with my bow, you know, bow bow questions, hunting hunting questions, and um, uh, but yeah, as far as being networked around, I, I would say social media has been a amazing tool um it's opened a lot of doors to give me opportunities to do things um connections with people um that uh, definitely i wouldn't have found if it wasn't for you know facebook instagram get some guy with running a podcast in wisconsin shooting you a direct message and asking you to come <laughs> take time out of your day <laughs> <laughs> exactly and I've seen you, you've been on a few other podcasts. I mean, how many have you been on now? Oh, I don't know. Um, it, it, it started off with hunting podcasts is what it was at first. Um, I, I don't know, honestly, I, um, I've lost track. Um, yeah, it started with hunting podcasts and then occasionally with, um, uh, triathlon endurance sports themed ones and just recently has it been more kind of like you know your podcast where it's just a little bit of everything and then you know just the whole complex we just you know ramble about everything and little things and different sides of the stories and that's that's those are nice i mean it's i don't feel pressure to not talk about hunting because <laughs> sometimes people get offended right <laughs> do you ever get tired of answering the same questions or is it because you've been on such a, a, a variety of topic podcasts or is it f fairly refreshing? Um, no, I, I mean, I don't know. It, like on my perspective, it's like, well, I don't, I, for people that have heard this story, I like, are they tuning out now? Because I'm like, Oh, it's Sid. <laughs> it's the same story. Chopped his legs off, does the Iron Man, shoots his bow, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> So I don't, I don't know for sure like what's going on in their head, um, you know. In my head, I, it's some of it's verbatim as far as you know. There's it's the, the story; it is what it is. Um, but every once in a while, I would say with every time I talk to somebody, I'm just talking to you. There's sometimes some of the questions that have been asked kind of opens different pieces of the story that I sometimes forget that I experienced. Um, and, and, you know, or sometimes we'll go into conversations and depths and, or the people that are interviewing something will strike them as a memory that they had. And, and, uh, it just, it's just the open dialogue of it is good. Um, and I, you know, I'm sure that there's listening listeners here today that have never heard this story before or know who I am. 
um, and and um, and hopefully that they make a you know a change in their life or realize that hey you know I shouldn't complain I still have a lot of things going for me um, and uh, to me that's worth worth uh, telling my story over and over again. And you've mentioned a couple organizations already that you work with, um, both Blade Runners and Philhauer. Are there any other companies that you work with and to help try to either raise awareness or, you know, like you said, help pay for these Ironmans because they're not cheap to try to travel to? No, no, they're not. Um, I mean, I, I have... I can go on and on about some of the hunting people that have, you know, whether they're being, you know, I'm an ambassador for them. But as far as like, I, I mean, I would like to, you know, maybe just get an opportunity to, to, to share real quick of the people that are helping me with the Ironman itself. Um, you know, you have amputee blade runners um, and Phil Hour that provide the prosthetics and the prosthetist, um, you know, leg maker. Um uh, we have uh, Intermountain Healthcare, uh, which is here in Utah. Um, it's a triathlon team that um, has me on to their mentor program where I actually have the opportunity to mentor other athletes. And they've also been there for me, um, kind of like a tri-club. Um, a big supporter is uh, a balanced um, athlete multi-sport, um, or no, no, otherwise known as BAM. And uh, my coach comes from there, and he... He supports me. He's been able to coach me um, at cost. And then same with uh, the Bike Fitter, Precision Bike Fit, um, who specializes in, in prosthetics and, and, and uh, bike fitting. He's an amazing, amazing guy. Mountain Ops that provide my supplements. Uh, Wink Naturals, which uh, is a buddy, my buddy's company that uh, has supported me financially to help get to the race. Challenge Athletes Foundation. Um, they're a, a company that uh, provides grants for people that um, have disabilities of some sort, whether they be coaching, um, prosthetics equipment, um, a bike, or um, some funds to help cover costs, travel, hotel, to do different events. Um, I bust in Justin, Justin Diggs Nutrition, who's been helping me with my diet, trying to fine-tune that, what works. Uh, I know I'm going to forget somebody, but uh, those are the people that come to my mind at this moment as we're talking about it. But yeah, definitely couldn't do that. And then, you know, the big supporter is my wife. I mean, she's able to put up with me um, and uh, allows me to do something like this um, because, you know, holy crap, you know, it's it takes a big time commitment. And that's a big one. Oh, I did forget uh, rapid reboot, which is a big recovery boots that I put on my stumps that help with the circulation on recovery and Wahoo fitness who provided a trainer and it's a smart trainer that hooks up to my bike. And by doing so, it actually gives me a really good workout compared to riding outside. Um, and when I'm crunched on time, it's sometimes a good benefit to have, not to mention we just got tons of snow this past winter. So running indoors was Riding indoors was nice. So. And if there's anyone listening out there that has MT or maybe they're uh, about to or just recently went through an amputation, is there any advice out there that you could give them? Oh, definitely. Um, it's tough because in their minds, they're already thinking that it's just not going to get better. 
um, because it's a progressive disease. Um, and in really, you, it's hard to overcome that mentality. But for me, I mean, it's not going to get better for me. Like I, I have a small window to do this race. The disease can get worse. It can, it's already starting to get a little bit worse in my hands. Um, and so I, but don't let that discourage you from trying to do things. You know, there's so much as now where I'm at that I realize that most of the issues of me not trying to do something was a mental thing, not necessarily a physical thing. Um, and if it doesn't, you know, if, if, you know, I'm not saying that anybody, everybody needs to do an Ironman to, to feel like they've accomplished much. But to find that niche, something in there that'll keep you going, to keep that drive. Um, uh, with CMT, there's a lot of people, and it's hard because I've gone to support groups, and it's tough because a lot of the people that go there are just very negative about life. Um, but I'm, I'm just going to tell tell anyone, and this might sound sappy, that you know life is hard, and uh, unfortunately, we you know. It gets harder as we go along, but the uh, the best thing about it is if it's it's going to be your choice whether or not you want to get better at it. Um, because if you accept that trial and you, you use that to your advantage and you learn from that strength, you're going to get better at it. If you don't, then it's just going to get harder and life's going to suck even more. So that's kind of that's kind of what suggestion I can give to people. Um, you know, is, is to just have that positive ment- mentality because that's that positive mentality that disease does not take away. That's going to come just from you. I appreciate it. And thank you again for taking time out of your day and coming on the show. And thank you everyone for tuning into this episode. Uh, this really wouldn't be possible without you, Sid, of course, and without all of you listening at home. We really appreciate it. If you would like to stay up to date with future guests and episodes, please follow me on Facebook and Instagram and Vero. Uh, all of it is under Rules of the Arena podcast. And make sure to like and, and follow my new show, No Story Left Behind. It's a podcast featuring veterans telling their stories from their careers. And you can tune in live to and join our conversations on Twitch uh, for each recording. Just head over to twitch.tv slash rules of the arena. And if you would like to support the show directly, please go to patreon.com slash rules of the arena podcast. There I have a little tip chart set up. It's just a buck a month. That's all I ask. And if you are a small business owner, artist, musician, whatever you want, and you'd like to have your craft highlighted on the show, I have a way for you to advertise. Uh, Just check that out, and I will work with you on creating an advertisement, and we will, of course, have you on the show. Thanks again, folks, and we will catch you next time.